Turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read verses 9 through 22. Please uh, listen carefully. Follow along uh, with this as it is God's word. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, thank you for giving us the scriptures, for making us your people. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for this worship service where we can profess our faith in you. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, help us to see you as a faithful God who grants faith to otherwise faithless people like us. For this, we need your grace. Thank you for loving us. Give us the desire to believe you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The story of Noah and his ark is more popular than ever. <clears throat> Even people who don't know the Bible and never come to church know about Noah and his big boat and all those animals coming two by two, to giraffes, to tigers, to snails, inching forward very slowly, to rabbits, to parakeets, even to skunks. Why the skunks? I don't know. Most people know about the Great Flood and how the boat floated until the waters receded, and then the animals departed two by two. And finally, the rainbow appeared, and God gave his promise never again to send a great flood that would cover the entire earth. For those who doubt the popularity of this story, the evidence is everywhere. I did a little searching online, and you know it's true if you find it on the Internet. And I discovered that if you travel across America, you will find several 
Noah's Ark restaurants, the most famous of which is the Noah's Ark Deli and Restaurant in Teaneck, New Jersey. So next time you go to Teaneck, you can tell them Dave sent you. You can buy Noah's Ark paintings, Noah's Ark music boxes, Noah's Ark t-shirts, Noah's Ark coffee mugs, <clears throat> Noah's Ark aprons, Noah's Ark earrings. And you'll even find on the internet five different recipes for Noah's Ark brownies. Now, I'll warn you, they're not all family friendly. <clears throat> you can raft the Arkansas and Colorado rivers with the Noah's Ark whitewater rafting. And it shouldn't surprise anyone to learn that the largest water park in the United States is located in the Wisconsin Dells and is called Noah's Ark. Now, a few years ago, a man named Robert Fulham wrote an essay called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And it was so popular, it was turned into a book, and it spawned a number of spinoffs. And this week, I ran across one of them that was All I Need to Know I Learned from Noah's Ark. And actually, it's not bad. There's some good common sense here. Number one, don't miss the boat. Huh? That's awesome. Number two, remember, we're all in the same boat. Number three, plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Number four, stay fit. When you're 600 years old, someone may ask you to do something really big. Don't listen to critics. Just get on with the job that needs to be done. Six, build your future on high ground. Seven, for safety's sake, travel in pairs. Eight, speed isn't everything. The snails were on board with the cheetahs. Nine, my personal favorite, when you're stressed, just float a while. Number 10, remember the ark was built by amateurs, the Titanic by professionals. <laughs> Good advice for those of you in government contracting. Wherever it is the government gives you to fly or drive, it was built by the lowest bidder. And last, no matter how bad the storm, when you're with God, there's always a rainbow waiting. So, there's basically two ways to approach this very familiar story. The first is to focus on all of the controversial issues, like what was the extent of the flood? Did it really cover the entire earth? How big was the ark? How did Noah get all those animals into the ark? And uh, this very pressing question, how did Noah and Mrs. Noah keep the ark clean with all those animals inside? But if we concentrate only on the controversial questions, we risk missing the larger message. And I think it's, it's important as a place to ask, you know, how did the flood cover the entire earth? But if we stop there with just trying to figure out, you know, all this sort of science behind it, we miss the larger spiritual lessons the Lord intends for us to learn. And I think it's also worthwhile to inquire about the civilization that perishes here. The emphasis of the text of this whole section regarding the flood is not on those who died, but on the one family that survived. And that's where we need to focus our attention. How did Noah and his family escape the terrible judgment of the flood? So 
Before we get too far into the story, uh, let's do a little review. We haven't done that uh, for a while. It's good to keep the big picture of the whole story in front of us. So let's do a quick survey of Genesis from Adam to Noah. We've seen God's uh, glorious work of creation in Genesis 1, which teaches us, among other things, it teaches us many things, but one of the things it teaches us is that this universe is a personal universe. It's not the result of fate or chance. It's not ruled by impersonal forces that don't care about us. It's the product of a sovereign God who spoke it into being and who cares about the people that he made. The culmination of that first chapter of Genesis is in the creation of man and on the relationship that God establishes with him. So when you read Genesis 1, you're immediately struck with the fact that this massive universe, which so dwarfs us, is not all there is. There's something bigger, something beyond that universe. And we don't live in a world where we're just part of a vast machine, we're just some tiny cog in the wheel. We may be small in comparison to the size of the universe, but we're greatly cared about by the one who made that universe. So you can't miss Genesis 1 presenting you with a personal universe. What a tremendous contrast to uh, the view of the universe that's held by so many today. We talk about living in a postmodern world where people are more aware of spirituality, and yet at the very heart of it, our generation is still a very uh, rational or rationalistic generation. Uh, Most people believe, along with Carl Sagan, that billions and billions of years ago, the cosmos came into being as we know it, and that's all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. And that's the faith, the belief of many uh, people in our own generation. And Genesis 1 flatly contradicts that view. It says, no, this universe is not all there is. There is a personal God who created this universe, and he tends to be in a relationship with the people that he created. That's Genesis 1. We've seen his grace towards man highlighted in Genesis 2. When you turn to Genesis 2, it's clear there's a special role that man will have in relationship to this God and this personal universe. Man's made in the image of God, male and female, and he enters into a covenant relationship with God, and God lavishes blessings upon him. Man's obligated to perform certain positive duties and to refrain from certain negative things, such as taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see again throughout Genesis 2, God is in a personal relationship with man. Then we come to the saddest moment in history, Genesis 3, with the fall. And we see the rebellion of man against God. We see the universe, the personal universe, is also a moral universe in the sense that God sets the standard for right and wrong. And when those standards are rebelled against, that is, by definition, sin. And God speaks in Genesis 3 of the consequences that result from that rebellion. And then we saw the consequences of sin in Adam's family in Genesis 4. We see those consequences worked out throughout human society. But we also got the scent of hope in the birth of Seth and the inauguration of the worship of God. In Genesis 5, 
We saw the ultimate consequences of death recorded generation after generation after generation. Those of you that remember were here a few weeks ago when we went through Genesis 5. It's basically uh, a stationary bike. Pedal, 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 die, fall off the bike. Next generation gets on. And uh, we saw through all that that God had spoken truly. He'd spoken rightly. And that Satan was a liar when he told Eve uh, and Adam that you shall surely not die. Whereas God had said that in the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. Satan had denied that there would be the consequences of death for man's sin. Well, we got to Genesis 5, and God said, let me assure you that where there is sin, there is death. And he proved that in Genesis 5 with a long genealogy. We saw the consequences of death in the generations of Adam. But we also saw, again, a promise of hope in the life of Enoch. Even from the darkest days, God never leaves us without a glimpse of his grace. Then in the first verses of Genesis 6, we saw the condition of the world, that old Adamic world, the world prior to the flood, and the general conditions of society in a sort of depressing detail there in the beginning of Genesis 6. And that summary gives us the results of sin in the world of Adam. It shows us the culmination of sin. And as we saw last week, everything up through Genesis 6, verse 8, was part of the book of Adam, the generations, the book which recounted the generations of Adam. And so now we've gotten to Genesis 6, verse 9, and it's the next section of Genesis. That's where we're going to start uh, today. Now, Genesis 6 through chapter, chapter 6 through chapter 9 is sort of an expanded lesson teaching us that this is a moral universe. And I don't tend to politicize uh, the message at all, but I think there's some things here which speak directly to our situation. If you look at our own society, if you're anything like me, the past few years have been kind of depressing. As we look at our nation, we look at our leadership, not just in politics, but also in business, education, media, even in the church. It's not always a pretty picture. In fact, it's usually not a pretty picture. And sometimes it becomes too much to even think about. Not only do you not want to hear the accounts which are being shared over the radio and, and TV, you don't want to read the accounts either, either in the newspaper or magazines or on the Internet. And as I was thinking about this, because it's real easy to just sort of rant about how bad things are, but I thought it's kind of shocking and probably depressing, especially for those of you who are in an older generation, which this morning I'm defining as older than me. But if you think about that greatest generation that was born in a time of sacrifice and need and served valiantly in time of trial, not just in the Second World War, but in the Korean and Vietnam conflicts, many other challenges of the world, it's depressing to see what's happened to all that you worked for. And I think it's depressing is not just the spectacle of what happens at the national level, but the way our nation reacts to a lot of this. Because for the most part, we don't react to a lot of it. There's a lot of apathy, and there's a so what attitude seems to prevail. 
and things that not even, you know, uh, 10 years ago would have been front page news on the newspaper are now buried in page five because they're just not that big news anymore. They've become so much more common. And, uh, and here in Genesis 6, all the way through Genesis 9, the scripture is going to remind us that this God, who created a personal universe, who created a moral universe, who says there's consequences for sin, does not shrug with apathy about evil and wickedness. He doesn't have a so what attitude. He doesn't say, I don't care. I set it up and just let it go. And in a kind of a strange way, I find that encouraging. I want to look at this passage with you because it gives us a picture of both God's judgment and God's grace. So let's, again, turn to Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 9. If you have your Bibles with you, open to Genesis 6. I encourage you to always bring your Bibles with you. And we'll start there in verse 9, and that God sees everything. And that's the first blank there in your outline. God sees everything. These are the generations of Noah. That's what we call a Toledot statement, generations of. There's 10 of them in the book of Genesis, and this is the second one. So whenever you read that, you know you're starting a new section of the book, and we're starting a new section this morning. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now if you look at verses 9 and 10, I want you to see how Moses, remember Moses is the author here, He's setting forth the character of Noah in contrast with his contemporaries. He's already painted a picture of what the world was like in Noah's time. We saw that back in Genesis uh, 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And over and against that backdrop, we now have a picture of a man who's faithful to the Lord. And we learn in these verses that God sees and that God judges faithfulness. One of the things that comes out through the book of Genesis is that God is a God who sees. When Adam and Eve rebelled, God sees it. He's not taken by surprise. He's not unaware of what's going on. You know, he doesn't say, oh no, what have I done? He comes to speak with them in the garden and ask them questions. It's not because he needs information. He already knows, and he's calling them on the carpet, essentially saying, what in the world are you doing? In Genesis 4, when Cain secretly slays Abel, God sees that. And when he comes to Cain and asks him a question, it's not because he doesn't know what's going on. He's calling Cain on the carpet. And in Genesis now, Genesis 6, the world is filled with corruption and violence. We're told that God sees that, and God judges that. But you know something? I find it interesting. 
I mean, isn't it interesting here in verses 9 and 10, God's judgment is not something to fear. It's something to rejoice in. It's a different way of thinking about judgment. In the first part of Genesis 6, when you think of God's judgment in connection with description of how these people are living, you know God's judgment is going to result in condemnation. But now he sees Noah's faithfulness in contrast to the generation, and his judgment is favorable towards Noah. So let's look how he describes Noah here. His character is described. Uh, as soon as we see this as the book of Noah, the very first thing we're given is a description of his character. And there's four components here. First, he's described as a righteous man. Now, sometimes we think of righteousness on a human a horizontal level, man-to-man, and of blamelessness, speaking of our relationship with the Lord. But I think in this passage, righteousness indicates Noah's willingness to conform to God's standards, not only in how he relates to man, but also in how he relates to the Lord. And when he's described as a blameless man, I don't think it means that Noah is perfect. I think it means that he is wholehearted, for the Lord. He's a man who desires with all his heart to glorify God, seeking the advancement of God's kingdom. He's not after his own agenda. He's following in the way of the Lord. And if you notice the qualifier, he's blameless in his time. So the very phrase there that's attached to blameless is meant to compare him to his contemporaries. It's not that Noah is sinlessly perfect in the midst of a corrupt land. In fact, we're going to see that Noah is far from sinless when we get to Genesis 9. Even in the great hour of his victory and the Lord's victory against sin, Noah is going to greatly disappoint us with his behavior. But in the comparison to his contemporaries here, Noah is a man whose heart is aimed towards God. Look at the third thing. He walked with God. We saw that phrase uh, prior to this is only used to describe Enoch. So both Enoch and Noah are said to walk with God. They're living in communion with God. So what do we have so far on Noah? He's a man who's righteous. He's obedient to God's standards of right and wrong. He's a man who's blameless. He's wholehearted in his love for God, above reproach in the eyes of his contemporaries. And we're told he's a man who walks with God. He's living in communion with God. So in these three descriptions, what do you have a picture of? You have a picture of a man who communes with God and obeys his will. There's no pretending to be godly on the outside while the inside is empty. He doesn't say, I love the Lord, but then live as if he serves the devil. There's a balance between the inner life and the outer actions. And then fourth, and I think this is very interesting as well, we're told he's a father. He's the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that's going to become very significant in this passage. Because in this passage, it will be the grace that God has for Noah that results in the salvation of Noah's wife and of his sons and of his daughter-in-laws. God saves daughter-in-laws. That's good to know. In fact, it will be the favor of God for Noah that results in the preservation and salvation of all the animals that will be brought into the ark. So Noah is a man in step with God, although out of step with his contemporaries. And I think that's a tremendous encouragement because God sees 
faithfulness and he judges it. Remember in the scriptures, judgment is not a negative term. We use it in a negative way. We say, people, please don't judge me. But when one is faithful to the Lord, judgment's a blessing. Especially if you're a faithful person in an unfaithful world and you experience the injustice of the world, then I think judgment is a beautiful word because it reminds you that God is going to set things right. And here's a man who is doing right, was judged to be faithful by God. And I think that shows us God's judgment has two sides. On the one side, he visits punishment on those who do wrong, but on the other side, he blesses and rewards those who do what's right in his sight. Notice who's determining what's wrong and right. It's God, it's not us. And in this case, this judgment of blessing by God is pronounced on Noah in a time uh, in which he lives that's just characterized by unfaithfulness. And so remember that when we live in a time of seeming anarchy, in a time of great injustice, in a time of uh, wickedness beyond our ability to understand, God's judgment is a blessed thing. Because even though sometimes it may look to us that God doesn't care about what's going on, the scriptures tell us that God sees and rewards that which is good, and he punishes that which is wicked. And let me say one other thing, just sort of as an aside. Uh, that actually comes from Romans, not from Genesis 6. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in Romans 1 and 2 that one way God punishes wickedness is that he allows it to multiply and destroy itself. You see that clearly in Romans 1 and 2. Sometimes God's judgment against wickedness is to confirm that wickedness. In other words, when a people set their face towards wickedness, he doesn't always turn them from the wickedness that they have determined. He allows them to go on deceiving themselves and deceiving others. That's a manifestation of God's judgment. So when we see that happening in society, don't think that God's not active. On the contrary, God is active. It may be that what he has decided to do is withdraw his common grace, his restraining grace, and allow that wickedness to go to its logical end and the punishment that's connected with it. And I think to some degree that's what's happening here in Genesis. However, you see in the Bible, judgment never comes without grace. Here in the midst of God's terrible judgment, he's declared, I'm going to destroy all life on the earth. And yet we get to verse 14 and we're given God's provision. God's provision. He tells Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So the next thing we see here is the instructions given by God for the ark of salvation. 
Remember, Moses is writing this. Moses knows something about arcs. He knows something about explicit instructions from the Lord. And if you go into the book of Exodus and read Exodus 25 and following uh, on all the specific instructions that Moses had to obey, this is a man who knew what instructions were like from the Lord. He knew how to follow them. Bear that in mind. As we look at these verses, just a few interesting things about this passage. First of all, we have no idea what gopher wood is. The best that we can come up with, the best scholarly guess, is that this is a cypress, uh, wood from a cypress tree. And some versions even translate it as a cypress, but it actually says gopher wood. But we just don't know. That's our best guess, is cypress. And Noah is instructed to make an ark of gopher wood. Now, ark... Again, very interesting term. Apparently, it's originally an Egyptian term that Moses has taken over and borrowed. It's only used one other time, and I found this fascinating. I hope you find it fascinating. It's not just me. It's only used one other time in the Old Testament. Every other time ark is used, it's referring to Noah's ark. But there's one time it's used where it's not referring to Noah's ark, and that's in Exodus chapter 2. And you know what it's used for? To describe that little floating vessel that Moses was put into. The basket that Moses was put in in the bulrushes in order to be saved from the destruction of the firstborn of Israel by Pharaoh. So in the Bible we get a little ark and a great big ark. And if you remember the story, that little ark, the little vessel, would carry Moses who would become the savior of his people. And the same vessel, just massively bigger, would carry Noah, who would become the savior of his people. The ark itself, it's not a ship. It's not built to be a seagoing vessel. It's more like an Egyptian barge. And apparently that term was used uh, in Egyptian literature for barges that would carry stuff up and down uh, the Nile particularly on the way to make all those massive structures for the pharaoh. and uh, But it's also a term in Egyptian literature that's used for a big box, like a chest. And uh, it would, in fact, resemble a coffin, squared, flat, and long. It's roughly in the dimensions of a giant coffin. Three decks are described of this particular ship, and... Uh, if you think our translations of cubit are correct, Bill Cosby uh, notwithstanding, um, it's roughly 437 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's a massive ship. <clears throat> I was reading, them, what would a ship like this be like? Ninety-six thousand square feet. I don't know how big that is. It's really big. This might be more helpful. One point four million cubic feet. Now you understand. Has a capacity of fourteen thousand tons. It would have displaced forty-three thousand pounds. I don't know what any of this means. It's Beyond my understanding, I'm not a ship person. But this is a really big ship. 
This is a massive ship. It would have been big enough to very easily hold 35,000 different varieties of land animals and birds. Remember, <clears throat> didn't have to hold the fish. We forget that. The, uh, now, people have done all sorts of work uh, scale model of the ark and explained it's ideally suited for floating. Remember, it's not a seagoing vessel. It doesn't have to get from point A to point B. It doesn't have to cross the Atlantic. It just has to not sink. And it would have been low in the water, but because of its size and dimensions, it would have been virtually incapable of being capsized in the midst of a deluge. And so the ship which Noah is given to build is perfectly suited for the purpose that God has for it. One other very interesting thing about the ark, I wasn't planning to spend this much time on the ark other than saying it's really big. <clears throat> We're told it's covered inside and out with pitch. I think I get on the outside. Not sure about the inside, but that's what it says, inside and out with pitch. So I looked up the word pitch. And in this case, it has nothing to do with baseball. It's highly disappointed. It has the same Hebrew root as the verb to atone. And we have a hint here of a covering or an atonement even within this vessel, this ark, which is a place of protection for God's people in a time of destruction. So I think just as you get into the ark, it's amazing there's... It's not just a big boat. There is a lot of symbolism of God's provision, even within the ark and how it's made and how it's built and what it's called and the kind of pitch that's used. And you can get in there. I think there's actually a fair amount of symbolism in there. It's to a sense resemble the uh, teach us of the grace of God. Probably teaches us something about modern day architecture and how. Uh, churches today, and for many years, were built to resemble ships filled with symbolism to teach us about the grace of God. Well, it brings us now to the end of chapter, chapter uh, all this talk of judgment and destruction reminds us of salvation, starting at verse 18 and God's salvation. This is awesome. He, he's just said, all judgment, you've got to build an ark. I'm going to destroy all the life. I'm going to destroy the earth. There's going to be a big flood. Verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Goes on, tells them exactly what to do and to bring all the food. It ends verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. And here we have the covenant of grace is made with Noah. And again, we see God confirms his grace relationship with his people in a time of tribulation. This is the first usage of the word covenant in the Bible. Found right here in Genesis 6.18. Now, we've talked about covenant previously. 
and said how uh, much of uh, uh, the first five books of the Bible is written in the form of a covenant. But here it is, the very first usage of the word covenant, and I think it already assumes that a covenant relationship exists. God says, I will establish my covenant with you. In other words, I think he's saying, I will make firm the covenant that I've previously made with man, and I will now make it with you. And so although the word covenant hasn't been used prior to verse 18, it's assumed that God's already in a covenant relationship with the line of Adam and the line of Seth, remember the godly line, and now passed down to Noah. And so we're told in the saving of Noah, God will keep his covenant through the line of Noah. And he will prove to Noah that his promises are sure and true and eternal by saving him from the deluge to come. He's instructed to build this ark and bring in the animals. And Noah is saved by God's gracious, redemptive covenant, which he inaugurated back in Genesis 3, but I think even began before that. He is to become, in many ways, the new Adam for a new world. And then finally we see verse 22, his response to God's covenant. Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. Now, if you've read the book of Exodus, you should remember that phrase, you should recognize it. That phrase is repeated over and over and over about the life of Moses in the book of Exodus. After God's commands to Moses, we'll often read, and Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. And this crazy task, that Noah is called to do. He did just as the Lord had commanded him. <coughs> and so in all of this, we see the proper response of a faithful man to the commands of God. It would apply to any faithful person. And that response is one of obedience. It's not to question what God is doing. It's not asking why. It's not to argue with him about the significance or the relevance or the usefulness of the task. It's to obey. Trust and obey. That's the response of the righteous to the commands of God. So in this passage, we see the ark that's going to provide salvation, going to preserve the life of man in this world. It's going to be part of the bringing of salvation, even as God brings judgment on the world. And we see a picture of how God chooses out of the sea of humanity in rebellion against him, some to be his own. He shows his grace to them, extends his plans for the blessing of the world uh, uh, through them, through those who are faithful to the covenant. Now Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2 tell us, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. That's what Genesis 6 is all about, faith. As Hebrews 11.6 would say, without faith it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must uh, believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. This text is about faith. It's not about scientific naturalism. 
It's not about trying to figure out how the flood happened. It's not about geography or meteorology or paleontology. So I told you at the beginning of the message, the emphasis is not on those who died, but on the one family that survived. Genesis 6 is focused on what kind of man or woman is saved from judgment. And Noah provides the answer. Hebrews 11, verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Being warned by God of coming destruction, being called to build an ark, Noah believed and became, back to Hebrews 11.1, 1, certain of what he did not see. Namely, that there was a terrible mountain of water that would be engulfing the world with the ark riding high. And this certainty of faith about the coming flood combined with the assurance of things hoped for, namely the promise of salvation for him and his family. So this certainty of faith and assurance of hope sweeps over his soul. Noah believes God. And it says, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Like Abram, Genesis 15, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And that's what we see. We get uh, to Genesis 7, the very first verse, the very next verse after today's passage. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. This is not a righteousness that comes from obedience. This is a righteousness that comes by faith and which produces obedience. That's why Noah could build an ark. Noah was chosen by God. Remember last week, grace came first, then the righteousness. He wasn't chosen for his great carpentry skills. He wasn't chosen for his abilities as a sailor. He lived in the desert. Noah and his sons built an ark at a location that was probably miles and miles from any large body of water. And no one in his right mind would have believed the ark was ever going to float because nobody had ever seen enough water to float it. But Noah responded by faith. He was given righteousness by faith. He was saved by faith. Do you honestly think God is going to treat you any differently? Think God is going to judge you by a different standard? It's by faith alone. Don't ever forget that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we long for the grace that that you would find grace that you would give us grace, that we would have grace in your eyes. We're amazed at the grace you showed Noah. We'd like to get the grace that Noah got. But we have so little faith in our lives that it seems impossible. When it comes to believing and trusting your word, we fall apart and we fall down. We don't believe. We think we have to come up with that faith all by ourselves. And we forget that you are the one who gives us what you want to find in us. The faith comes from you. So Lord, this morning I pray, give us that faith.
We ask in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.